Welcome to the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast, where we celebrate the craft of poetry. Each week, we feature interviews with incredible poets, songwriters, and artists, including Olivia Gatwood, Safia El Hilo, Dana Joya, and many more. We also feature periodic submitted poetry episodes. Visit viewlesswings.com to submit your original poetry. I'm your host, James Moorhead, Poet Laureate of Dublin, California, and author of Canvas, Portraits of Red and Gray, and The Plague Doctor. Hit subscribe and follow me on Instagram or threads at Viewless Wings. Brandon Rushton is the author of The Air in the Air Behind It, Tupelo Press 2022, selected by Bin Romke for the Berkshire Prize. Born and raised in Michigan, his individual poems have received awards from Gulf Coast and Ninth Letter and appear widely in publications like The Southern Review, Denver Quarterly, Pleiades, Bennington Review, and Passengers North. His essays appear in Alaska Quarterly Review, Terrain.org, The Critical Anthology, A Field Guide to the Poetry of Theodore Rothke, and have been listed as notable by Best American Essays. After earning his MFA from the University of South Carolina, he joined the writing faculty at the College of Charleston. Since the fall of 2020, he served as a visiting professor of writing at Grand Valley State University in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Brandon, welcome to the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast. Thanks for having me, James. Excited to have you here. Your book, The Air in the Air Behind It, opens with a long prose poem, Milankovitch Cycles, that reminds me of William Burroughs' cut-up method, a series of interconnected statements that read like found poetry. In the poem you wrote, a lone mammal dips its nose in the river, leave it to something celestial to abbreviate nomadic momentum. A meteor cuts through the low cloud cover, and all the stampeding herds abruptly stop and stand bewildered. What was your approach to constructing this poem, and what was your decision process to open the book with this poem, which I thought was a terrific choice? Yeah, thank you. Um, so I was reading Richard Manning's book, Grassland, at the time. I, I had finished my Master of Fine Arts in 2015, and I felt like I was writing a very particular type of poem. And so I, I was working on these type of poems for a while, and I said, I'm either going to write these type of poems for the rest of my life, or I'm going to have to switch something up. Uh, and I happened to be reading this, this book, Grassland, by Richard Manning. Uh, it was kind of this deep dive into geologic history. It felt kind of collage-like in the way that he covered so much history, time. Um, and I was like, this, it seemed to kind of unlock something for me in my own poetics uh, to stop thinking maybe about the poem that could be included in a literary journal, to start thinking across uh, multiple pages, to think in, in sort of the prose fashion, to think in kind of the collage or the cut-up fashion as well, um, and to kind of collect all these images uh, so I worked on this this poem for probably collecting statements and images for maybe like two or three months. Uh, I was terrified to write it. Uh, I, I was like never brave enough to sit down. So I just I kept uh, collecting all these different computer sheets of paper with different images and lines on it. And I said, at some point, when I feel like I'm ready, when I feel like there's some order to it, I'll sit down and start kind of piecing it together. Uh, and so when that time fit, 
finally came, it felt like I had thought about it for so long uh, that they started, I started to see connections between the images. I started to see connections between the lines that I'd been collecting over that course. And, and it felt like I had been given permission by what I saw happening in this book that had nothing to do with poetry. Mm-hmm. And it felt like it really opened up a lot of opportunities for me. And so I felt like when I actually started to put the the book together that it made sense to be the first poem because it felt like a poem of permission that it felt right to open a book with that type of permission too. that here's a statement that maybe the book is going to go in a lot of different directions. Um, and how can we, we maybe establish that up front? I think that uh, you bring up two interesting points is that first of all, it, it takes a, it can take a deceptively long time to write a poem. Occasionally the poem will just fall out of us. I'm sure you've had that experience, but the, uh, it can be deceptively time-consuming to write such a small number of words. Uh, I think that, that um, again, a good poem, people won't see that, but, they'll, but poets know it. And then, uh, and then the fact that there's so many different ways in which poetry can be approached. And that's one thing I loved about your book is the style is so distinct. Um, so that leads to my second question. Uh, no known natural predators is representative of your distinct style, the stringing together of phrases and lines that are so deliciously unusual. A couple of examples from this poem. Who can blame the way in its quiet elongation? Time pauses just a little bit so the people driving by can form a picture in their minds of a car exploding on the side of the expressway in the rain. And, for example... The blindfold on the mannequin the paparazzi use for target practice. You've talked a little bit about how you developed these this style of poetry. What attracts you to these unusual lines? Yeah, um, I felt like when I first was interested in poems, I was interested in like the weirdness of poems or the weirdness that poems always offer up to me. Um, And so for me, I felt like if I was going to sit down and write a poem, uh, I wanted the the lines to be strange. Uh, I wanted them to stick out. Um, I wanted them to be unusual, um, provocative in some way. I didn't want to waste a line in any in any way. Uh, and so I feel like a lot of the times that's why the poems maybe feel so associative or that they might leap between subjects, between images, uh, is because uh, I'm, I'm less in, you know, like I don't want to spend my time kind of filling the gaps between between the lines. Mm-hmm. I want them to, to come kind of right after each other. Um, so yeah, I, I felt like, uh, I think it's really interesting that you pick out those two poems because they were written almost back to back, Milankovic Cycles and No No Natural Predators. Uh, they felt like both of those together felt like they were the doorways into this book for me to rethink the, the way that I was kind of um, approaching the poem and how expansiveness and endurance um, at least in the way that we write or compose, could offer up a lot of different opportunities. Perfect. Well, you've organized this collection into unnamed sections of varying lengths, separated only by pages holding just a thin line, almost a blank page. In making this choice, you've created a puzzle, a mystery for the reader to interpret the breaks. How did you think about organizing and separating of poems in this collection? Yeah, um... I felt like working with so many long form poems, I was really concerned with overwhelming my reader. 
Uh, a few of the different versions of orders that I had uh, of this book felt overwhelming to me when I was reading back through it. So I was like, I know I have to give some space here. I have mm -hmm. to give some breathing room here. Uh, and I think a lot of these long poems, kind of the staggered tercet poems that I was working with in here, came pretty quickly on the heels of each other. And I knew that I would have to get away from those to give that breathing room to the reader. And so when I sat down and actually put this book together, I was thinking a lot about symmetry and balance and how can you make that kind of happen in a poetry collection. And so for me, it was like, let's bookend it with a long sort of prose poem with, you know, a long kind of jagged poem at the end and then break it up with the short poems, the ladder list and, and puddle jumper, uh, and then kind of have more uh, sections in between that are a, a variety of different forms there. And I think like for me, uh, again, it was just like breathing room. How can, how can we really get bogged down in poems where we're really, we're, we're jumping, we're being almost overwhelmed with images and lines. And then the next we're flying through it and they're just page turners. So that's why I really liked kind of working with the puddle jumper and the ladder list pieces because they don't ask you to stay around too long and you can move quickly. It's interesting you mentioned the puddle jumper because that's my very next question. So in puddle jumper, you don't use any punctuation. The lines are jammed in unusual places spread across multiple pages in small blocks of text. You could have chosen to punctuate this poem into a prose poem. Um, and by the way, I've in my first book, I and for most of the time I've written poetry, I was no punctuation and all lowercase, almost to a point of fanaticism. So I've actually backed off that now and I'm being more <laughs> deliberate in that choice, which I still use that. But I also use, you know, I do prose poetry and punctuation and capitalization, but uh, I found myself getting into a pattern. Uh, you break things up in so many different ways. I thought this was an interesting switch. So share your thought process in crafting, which you started to talk about in crafting the form of this poem and maybe what iterations it went through. Yeah. So those came out um, almost as is, uh, which was pretty, a pretty rare experience for mm -hmm. me. Um, and so it was one of those where I was like, all right, they came out. I don't really want to touch them too much. Uh, I knew that I wanted to get away with <laughs> get away from using punctuation just because it felt like those longer poems, like you're stopping, you're thinking, you know, like you're, 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 you're really paying attention to the breathing and um, I guess like the pace of those poems. And so this one, I just wanted the floor to continually kind of fall out while you're reading uh, where it almost, you're almost cascading from image to line and you could almost read the poem backwards or read the lines backwards. And it's really not quite clear what word goes with what, what line goes with what. And I felt like for me, those poems, while they're like very fluid and you can fly through them, it felt like they also kind of created a type of turbulence that I wanted in the book. Um, some kind of uh, disruption uh, at least in the coherence. Um, and so I think like, you know, the book kind of dealing with whether it's like weather related turbulence or climate related turbulence, social related turbulence, um, those poems kind of offered this, um, this disruption to what, to the way that we might normally think about uh, maybe language or the image that it's working with. Well, cool. I thought it was very effective that you could, as a reader, create your own lines um, you were given agency over where the line is and mm -hmm. isn't. And there's probably multiple, if someone were to do a, not an erasure poem, but a markup poem where you create line, you could probably create multiple meanings out of the same group of text. Yeah, it's very cool. For sure. So the dark horse accompanies a friend away from Pentecost camp. And 
In the later scenes, the setting is still a fraud are two examples of terrific poem titles. Uh, what is your approach to authoring or finding the title of a poem and how do you workshop poem titles? And poem titles are incredibly important. I had a, uh, a, a friend and poet colleague who's been on the podcast a couple times who um, gave me some notes on on uh, on some of my poem titles. And I had a poem about an eighth grade experience called Stage Fright, which was a very functional title and that's what it was about. Uh, but she told me that's not very compelling. So I retitled it to be that time I was caught left that time I was left for dead downstage and uh, and immediately got picked up after I changed the title it's probably a coincidence but I think it helped so um yeah how do you uh how do you find these wonderfully uh evocative titles yeah so for me I think a lot of times I'm just like I am with the content of poems I feel like I'm collecting I'm waiting around and a lot of the times some of my lines that I think I'm going to use in poems are actually the titles for poems uh and so the the dark horse poems in particular I thought I might work on a manuscript that would deal with kind of a character called the dark horse and that that would be kind of this reoccurring poem that would roll out throughout the collection. And then I realized that maybe just two of them would work fine um, in a collection that it's kind of mysterious. Like you don't really know what it is or what it means or really why it's in there, but it kind of pulls your attention to it. Um, but when it comes to, to kind of titling those two, uh, it, it, again, it was kind of, it thought it was an idea for like a future collection that got scrapped. Uh, and then these kind of got reabsorbed into this manuscript. Um, but usually when I'm thinking about, about titles, I can't, I can't start a poem unless I have a title. Mm. Um, I think, you know, I've, I've heard um, some of my, my favorite poets, you know, are, they talk about how they write their poem first, go back, look at the content, revise it, and then they title the poem. And that, like, I don't know, that, that almost, like, gives me anxiety <laughs> um, kind of thinking about that because I think I would freeze up and, and the, the title would be underwhelming if I went back to it after I had written the whole poem. Um, so for me, I don't want to start unless I have kind of um, a generative title that has some type of motion or energy behind it. And for me, like, you know, the one, um, the Dark Horse accompanies, um, you know, a friend away from Pentecost camp felt like it was already on the move. And so I was like, here's this poem. If we don't use punctuation in it, does it feel fluid? Does it feel like it's on the move? Can the form match the content? Um, so for me, you know, I, I think I sat on that title for a while and then like I always do. And then it was like when the content came, um, it felt pretty natural. Oh, that's fascinating that you start with the, the title first and so deliberately that is that is probably less common. I think you're the first poet to mention that. Uh, many poets struggle with titles and that's probably why they get left for the end because it's the thing they're most uh, intimidated by. Um, fascinating. So Public Works is one of my favorite poems in this collection. I found it reminiscent to one of the my favorite poems from my when I was in, in, uh, in high school, Philip Levine's poem, On My Own. You begin, dismissed from some other duty, the drawbridge attendant questions the stability of days, as in, how long until we've been holding on to finally, what we've been holding on to finally gives away. A paycheck comes and the only thing we find puzzling is its amount. 
How do you approach incorporating personal experience into your poetry? And what role does personal experience play given the at times surreal and found poetry style of poems in this collection? Yeah, um, that's something I've been I've been kind of wrestling with in the way that I, I think about it is what is what does first person mean for me? Uh, what does it mean for me to be sort of engaged in in the poems themselves? And you know, I, I'm I'm kind of interested in keeping keeping the personal at bay, um, as in like I'm a character uh, in the poems in uh, in maybe like more focusing on here's what I'm observing and here's how these observations and these things that I'm sort of apprehending or taking in can then be remixed or um, spun into something else into the poem. Uh, so that poem in particular, you know, I, I wanted to work with, I remember going um, oftentimes into to Flint, Michigan. My dad worked at uh, GM Truck and Bus down there. And I remember meeting him um, for lunch at the Coney Islands uh, to get some hot dogs. And I remember kind of going down there and I would be so excited to see him. And then at the same time, it was sort of this, like, it was a set, it was kind of like set, right? Like you're in Michigan in winter, um, you're kind of worn down. Um, everybody's kind of working in the shop. And I remember kind of just always while I was excited to have that experience also at the same time being sort of like sad about it. And I wanted to try to, to kind of capture that push and pull there or that accordion effect of that moment. And so for me, um, yeah, I, I feel like I want to capture maybe a feeling or an image, uh, something that I've apprehended in the past, but maybe try to make it into something that, that wasn't actually mine. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and try to, yeah, almost like, remix it into to something new um, because I'm, I'm skeptical of myself, I think, as a speaker. I'm skeptical of myself in a poem and I want the I to be, you know, myself at times of things I've observed, but at the same time, like um, versions of myself that haven't existed yet or have only existed maybe in my mind. Oh, that's that's really fascinating. Yeah, there's, I mean, I'd say most poets incorporate themselves in some way. Some don't at all. Uh, but that's interesting how you frame the way you think about the I in a poem. Uh, so the way layer stands out in form, short, simple lines and straightforward storytelling. Your approach amplifies the power of the subject matter. Share how this poem evolved during the editing and revision process. Yeah, I was I was thinking... I think that they were almost like call them like, you know, like friend, there's like two friend, there's multiple friend poems and there's like the dark horse felt like they had like the dark horse poems are siblings. And then it felt like the way layer and story they told you, they tell you in time uh, were sibling poems as well, that they were sort of written at the same time. They're maybe narrative driven, um, maybe like a surreal detective type of experience there. Um, but yeah, so the way layer uh, came out of, I, I would say, thinking about the after effects of public works, um, kind of that same, kind of existing maybe in that same world, um, uh, kind of a, a worn downness, um, but also, again, kind of keeping any type of the personal maybe at bay in some sense and, and having it kind of unfold like a quick 
episode of television, um, maybe, uh, in, in, in kind of like the mysteriousness of um, people wanting to, to kind of walk into uh, a warehouse, right, investigating things there. Um, so for me, uh, I think I was looking at the landscape of the book as a whole. And while there were a lot of these poems that were these sprawling observational type of poems where it felt like I was very much kind of, you know, walking through these areas and and perceiving or observing these things, I wanted a couple that felt like episodes Mm -hmm. that they were, um, they were very much, um, referencing certain types of characters. Uh, and it felt like it, it almost like brought in, um, I don't want to say like a cast of extras because I feel like it's a, it's a cast of main characters too, mm-hmm. in some way. Um, but if it, it, it brought in, uh, it felt like, it felt like it acknowledged others. I don't want to say neighborhood, but it felt like it, it felt like it acknowledged others around the self or the speaker of the book and kind of took maybe some of the focus off that speaker and in a game just kind of allowed for some breathing room there. Um, so I feel like, there's a lot of those poems, the way layer in particular, or story they told you, they tell you in time that almost like puddle jumper or ladderless allow for breathing room across the book in, in a different way. No, it's a passing. You bring up breathing room multiple times. And I think as people build collections and certainly in the, in my books where I've, I know that there's moments where I have to change the pace or I have to change the mood or uh, my, my most recent book, the plague doctor has, moments that get a little on the darker side and I had to, and I had, you know, as I worked with editors, it's like, you have to find a way to, you know, lighten it up a little bit or give people a chance to breathe or people chance to step back and just laugh. And then uh, before you go back, so that's really important. And I do think going back to the, the section breaks being so simple, I found in reading your book, uh, which it does have longer poems than most collections, just that little visual space just gave you a chance to just take a little breath mm-hmm. and almost let your brain reset a little bit, almost like uh, tennis players between serves. They don't need a lot of time to get their heart rate down, but just a little bit of a gap uh, makes a big difference. So I thought that was a very uh, clever choice. Well, you just you just mentioned that you're anticipating my questions in strange ways. <laughs> so you just mentioned story they told you they'd tell you in time. A poem that reads as though it should be recited in one long, continuous stream without taking a breath. What role does reciting your poetry out loud play in your editing and re- revision process? I think it's the most important role. Um, I, I think for me, uh, more than anything, I'm interested in sound. Um, I'm interested in the way that we build a coherent motion through sound and how sense oftentimes isn't necessarily connected to sense in language, but it's connected to the sense of sound in language. And so for me, um, yeah, I, I think sound is, if I'm reading it out loud, that's the only way I'm going to acknowledge if there's a weak spot in my poem. Mm-hmm. It's the only way I'm going to acknowledge that there's a, a false moment that I need to return to. Um, so with those poems, um, some, I mean, the one, you know, story they told you, they tell you in time, uh, is a fascinating poem to read out loud, like you said, because it it is almost one continuous breath and I can't do that, you know, so I, I've read it at a few, a few readings and I have to, almost every time I have to find a different place 
to breathe because I, I don't know where that's going to come from. And so for me, um, I think that idea of the breath and sound is the driving factor in what maybe makes a poem successful, at least for the way uh, that I approach them. Um, so when it comes to, to revision, uh, that's the first thing I do. Step away from the computer, read it out loud to the room, uh, and see if it lands for me on sort of a a soundscape level or something. No, that's why reading out loud is so important. That's come up multiple yeah. times in this podcast. And in that poem in particular, I used to play the oboe for eight years. My mom's uh, is, a, is a professional musician, as is my dad. And they certainly as a as a... When you play a woodwind instrument, you have to think about breath and the timing of the breath and sneaking it in. And there is a subset of, of, of woodwind musicians are capable of doing something called a, um, circular breathing, where they breathe in while they're blowing out and they never have to stop, uh, which is extraordinary. I couldn't do that. But I really did think I think so. I think reading it out loud also has this other benefit is you physically have to breathe at some point. Yeah. And yeah. that can inform your poetry, too. Did you did you find that sort of being a uh, a son of two musicians like really influenced your poetry? Oh, definitely. Particularly, there's yeah. a musicality to poetry. There's a rhythm. Yeah. Uh, there's there's no question that lying under my father's piano while my my mom and dad practiced, or being in the in the silence of a of a of a darkened theater during many hours of dress rehearsals and rehearsals, where I just had to let my mind race and I couldn't do anything other than just Definitely. be there. It, it, no, I think all of that really made me more observant and to observe the musicality uh, sure. in the world. Absolutely. Huge, huge influence. So my parents who are still alive and retired, yeah. uh, shout out to my, to my parents. <laughs> um, so in the, uh, in the poem, in the upside down of unfurious people, while it's similar in phrasing to your unpunctuated poems has punctuations. So how do you, choose to use punctuation as a poetic device what what is it when does it serve a purpose and when does it not serve a purpose for in your poetry yeah honestly um it's probably not a good answer but i think it comes out of boredom um <laughs> and, it, and it's like okay i don't want to write a poem with no punctuation right now um or i want to write a poem with no punctuation right now uh and i think for me it's trying to find play around with form to see what opportunities are presented through it. Um, and I think that's, that's interesting that you mentioned that they, they seem similar, right. Whether, or at least with that poem, that the use of punctuation and the, the lack of punctuation and others might work similarly. Um, which I, I, I think I like, you know, I think, I, I think I'm into that, right. Um, that we can kind of play around with this different, these different styles of, of language, or at least like the, the construction of language uh, to get similar effects. And I think for me, um, you know, if, if, if the lack of punctuation becomes about speed, um, the use of that punctuation can be slowing it down in a little bit too. So I think, you know, I, I, I keep coming back to breathing room, but I think so much of the, the book is about breathing in in some manner um that for me it's it's also slowing down right so you're speeding up at points you're slowing down at other places as well so it's kind of this acceleration deceleration so i feel like the book in a lot of different ways whether it's breathing here or not breathing here or speeding up or slowing down it, there's so much of it is sort of this accordion effect throughout the book that i feel like maybe gets after 
um, the type of turbulence that I, I wanted to examine both in terms of the content and the forms that I was working with. Beautiful. And I can relate to the the you know boredom reason is that yeah I just I was just tired of doing the same thing and wanted to shake it up and now when I come back to it it's more deliberate mm-hmm. uh, but yeah I can relate to that in my in my most recent book I had uh, I decided to cut it and break it into three acts again to provide some space and then the middle act uh, most of the poems were lowercase so I made them all lowercase just to have punctuated sentence case to lowercase and back to punctuation sentence case and then that's a subtle thing i'm not sure people will pick up on it but uh yeah, uh, yeah it's good more i was going to ask like when you're ordering your manuscripts do you tend to use sections uh i have in my first and third books in my second book okay. i didn't it uh, didn't feel like it it needed it um okay. but the third book i wrestled with the order for a long time and the structure of it um and then i felt the nature of the book really screamed out for sections it definitely had a little bit of a shakespearean references sprinkled in so making it three acts kind of lent into that um yeah i mean the ordering and the, the and the construction of a book is 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 like writing a poem in itself uh, that's yeah. the way i think about it yeah. It, yeah it's it's wild that i feel like a lot of times the manuscripts like tell us the way that they want to be ordered too. Like, you know, I, I think I, I haven't had one, I haven't worked on one where I felt like I didn't have to use sections. Like I, I'm kind of obsessed with sections. Um, but it it's weird how you can you can play around with it, put it on the floor, spread it out, hang it on the wall, do whatever you need to do to kind of space it out. And then you read it and like, you know, immediately whether or not it works, you know, it's but, strange. It's like, yeah, you put it on the floor and it's like a big Ouija board where, where right. you're not moving it around. You're being moved around. I haven't thought about it that way. I think there's a poem yeah. in there anyways. I'll yeah. think about that. <laughs> um, so in Ergonomics of the Later Land, uh, it's a wonderful series of phrases that could work individually as micro poems. Some examples. It is always a mistake to assume the machinery has no mind of its own. We should have known a population on a planet known for wobbling will wobble too. Uh, talk about the inspiration behind this poem. And do you consider this a series of micro poems or think about the phrases you build as micro poems that could, if you were to do a whole book of micro poetry, which uh, Billy Collins did in his most recent book, uh, could you think about it that way too? Yeah, um, I, I haven't, but I actually like, you really got me. You got me. You got me thinking about it now. Um, and I'm interested in kind of what that would look like if I turned away from, you know, these uh, these poems almost like obsessed with endurance and went c- totally to like restraint <laughs> in some manner. Uh, I think would be really interesting to work on um, in the future at, at some point. Um, but I, I would agree uh, that yes, they they do sort of function as these merged together micro poems um, because I, for me, I feel like the composition of those poems, I was, I was living in Charleston, South Carolina from 2016 to 2020. Uh, that book was, was written uh, entirely during that time. And I, that was during the time when I had gotten back into running and what I was doing when I was running was just picking up all these little images or having these little thoughts. And then I would almost like test myself. Can I remember those lines? Can I remember those thoughts and those images until I get back to the car so that I can write them down when I get done with my run? Uh, and then it, it became sort of this process where 
while I was sort of exercising physically in this way, I was interested if I could also exercise my language in a similar manner. And so I found that while I was doing distance running, I was also doing writing distance poems or poems that were interested in endurance. Um, and so for me, uh, when I read those poems, you know, I don't I don't think that that necessarily comes across, you know, for for a reader. But for me, when I'm reading them, I feel like I'm on a trail running mm-hmm. past a lot of different scenes, things that I'm seeing in people's backyards, the way that they might have hung a light, uh, the way that they might be sitting at a campfire, uh, the way that a car just missed a pedestrian in the crosswalk. Um, and so, you know, all those things for me, the, the trick was how can you merge them together without it without it really feeling like it was disrupted the whole time right. um so so the so the trick was um ironing it out and that almost goes back to to the previous question that you kind of talked about with um uh how do you revise it and it was can the sound be what merges these micro bits or these these pieces together uh and i found for me that that was kind of the key otherwise at you know at some point i think you know if you're writing a six-page poem it in it and they're all these almost like one-liners or they could be one-liners uh it would it would at some point be like okay i'm, I'm not interested right i'm, I'm right. gonna turn away from that and so i think for me it was that goes back to that idea of sound sound is what fills the space um and then it could be a mysterious sound. Um, it could be a sound related to the content itself or totally unrelated to the content kind of brings it together. And then in that way, it also felt for me like I was out on a run hearing something in the trees or hearing a side conversation while I'm running by a scene on this side of the road too. Um, so yeah. Oh, I found that very helpful. I think that you're this image you've got of, a, of almost like a runner going past scenes. It's one run. That's the continuity. There's one flow, one speed. And yet there's all these different images strung together in a sequence. That's a really uh, beautiful way to describe your process. So uh, just one more question before I pass the mic over to you. So I've asked about the first poems in collections with multiple guests. I'd like to talk about the last poem in your collection, the Isthmus, which includes... So then, lastly, the land allows us this, the children who insist on sprinting through whatever light is left, all of the parents making their way out of the water, afraid of what they'll miss. The structure of this poem, the observations of our natural world and our place in it, the sense of conclusion without giving explicit answers, makes this a very natural poem to close the collection. What was the decision process for selecting this poem to conclude with, and did you end up editing the poem to serve the purpose of being the last poem in the collection in any way? Yeah, uh, I'll start with the last question first. Uh, I finished writing it and I was like, that's the end of the book. Um, And that came pretty early on in the process. I think, uh, like I said, I worked on this from 16 to 20 and it was in 2017 when I wrote that poem. Uh, toward the end of 2017, so almost halfway through, I, I found the the concluding poem. Um, for me, uh, again, you know, I was living in Charleston, uh, and was this when I first moved there, um, you could get around the city really easily. And then it was voted, I think, number one city to live by by. Uh, um, I'm trying to think of the 
travel and leisure like 15 times in a row or something. And so all of this, all of these um, tourists were coming, all of this development was taking place. So it was, it was much more difficult to get out of the apartment and go places. So I would go to this, this neighborhood that was maybe a half mile away from, from the apartment. And there was this tiny little isthmus. And I would just go there and I would watch the fishermen you know, fishing for blue crab. I would just stand there and watch uh, the water at times. And I was like, you know what? I like the idea of a, an isthmus. I like the idea of like what that is structurally in terms of its landform. It felt like uh, it was related very much to Milankovitch cycles when it comes mm-hmm. to geology or geography. Uh, it felt sort of like it was the perfect bookend. So I had that title and I said, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to work on this. And, and I worked on that for pretty obsessively for about 10 days. And I was interested in, in kind of, you know, I, I think at times the book can be like, like you said, in, in your own work as well, right? You have to almost give a break from the darkness or the sadness in a book that is, I think takes up a lot of environmental concerns or climatic um, concerns. I didn't want the book to build toward despair, but I did want it to at least acknowledge that we will most likely have our lives rearranged or we will face some type of turbulence because of the era in which we live. And I felt like that poem was was sort of this acknowledgement of that, but not total total despair in that realization too, in that there was sort of this still ongoingness, that there was still this sort of passing the baton to those who come after us in some way that felt like the the natural sort of way that I wanted to end this book. Um, and so that one was kind of a, a one of those strange ones where you just work on it for 10 days and you're just like, I'm not really going to touch it. And it came quick and it, it was it pretty much came out in the form that it ended up in, in the book. And I kind of didn't question it and I read it. I liked it. I said, you know what, this is one of those where I'm not going to, I'm not going to mess with it too much. And it, it, one of those that almost feels like a gift, honestly. Yeah, I, I've had a couple of poems like that where they just they fall out of me, probably because I've been they've been brewing in the back of my mind mm-hmm. for a while and they're ready to come out of the of the poetry oven uh, yeah, yeah. and just be served right away. Uh, so I've had, I love that feeling. Well, now I'm going to turn the mic over to you to recite poems from the air in the air behind it. All right. Um, the first poem I'm going to read is "Ideogram of the New Civilian," and it is. Similar to a lot of the the poems in the book, um, in the way that we've been talking about them, kind of use the the staggered tercets. Uh, they it, it kind of combines a lot of different images and statements here together. Um, and the trick again with this poem uh, was was trying to rely on sound to kind of fill the gaps between it. So this is ideogram of the new civilian. Everybody claims to be a new and improved version of the introvert. Ask anyone about the comfort found within the absence from the cocktail party commencing now, just down the street. Skeptical of the way the water smells, the kids hold hands and smoke beside the sewage pond. Little revolutions make it hard to disregard the hours. The character chock full of worry, sweating in the kitchen of what is supposed to convince us is a home. 
I splash my face like doing so will reinstitute a smile and then admire the floral pattern on the hide bed. I hesitate too long and begin to make myself out in the hallway mirror. I say a lot of things like mischief makes the heart grow fonder or I'm a dream mechanic, a mad scientist, anything really to make myself believe my motion picture mind isn't a cowboy casting existential questions down a canyon until the echoes all come back the same as echoes. Notice now the children on the rooftops communicating through their strung together cans. Boredom makes me want to spill a secret to each bipedal organism passing on the street. I have a heavy heart and hope to make amends with those I've hurt. My hairdresser says it sounds like I have some making up to do, so I stop and make an angel in the snow. If I ever get fed up with the weather, I can at any time pack my things and leave. I always say I will, but never really wear a route into the mountains like a walker with a regular routine. From here, they say you can see the country, which is the thing I measure by the cobblestone stray dogs callous their paws upon. I circle around the conversation and sensing I haven't said the thing I came to say, whomever I've been speaking to suggests I quickly cut straight to the heart of things. We find the neighbor face down in the flowers the way she always said she hoped she'd go. Grubs spread fast and mortify the lawn. There is a sunset like there sometimes is. A little girl suddenly realizing when we die, we die without knowing the next century and how sad that must be for time. I look for a symbol or a sign. Not to start or stop, but to represent the stillness and the constant scratching of my head. People sing and join hands around the crater in the place where the post office used to be. A cloud passes through the froth of factories and we call forth our breath from the passing cloud. Each of us on the inside gets a little darker. Like politicians, Laws are good until they no longer are essential to our governance. It is no surprise what was sent out to the black hole did not come back. For the sake of national security, we ask all the satellites to close their eyes. It is in this little blindness that myth mistakes itself for truth. A child tattles on another for climbing up a tree intending never to return back to the earth. I wipe what I perceive to be a sweat and seek a place out of the sun, which leaves these little spots upon my skin. For my health, I'm told to monitor their hue. This has everything to do with detriment. But what is there in all of this? There is a lot of sky, a good wind wobbling the nerves of the orchard workers, a group of girls and boys turning their backs on the far fading air balloons, because even wonder wears away. And then the second poem is, what if there's something out there? Um, I'll just say that this one's, this one's for my dad. What if there's something out there? Like clockwork, everybody calls for their kids to bring the kites in. Turns out the street is as much of a drag as we thought it'd be. Lately, Everyone I look at looks a lot alike. They're all searching for a word to wind me down. 
I say hi to a man that looks like history, and then I have to hear about the stretch of years he's had. A man my dad would call old dog, but do so lovingly. I don't know anything anymore about endearment. Not a lick about how any of this is meant to end. For example, the inspector says the gas leak should have done us in. I start to believe in things I've never seen before. Like Utah. Or fate. It's a big sky. When the celestial passes close, everybody will stop and want to be the comet. Maybe then the type of mattress finally won't matter. Maybe then not even the vague notion the neighbor holds about our oven lamp. Just because it's internal doesn't mean the light won't leak. All of us in our parkas on the lawn, all of us walking around like we have some story someone someday is going to care enough to collect. The film ends, the teacher flips the switch, and everyone just closes their eyes. Awesome. So cool to hear poets read poetry in their own voice. So I want to ask you about, uh, about the tools that you use to craft your poetry, whether that's research, uh, your poetry doesn't, uh, at least the poetry that I've been exposed to through this book, doesn't focus on forms or rhyming or meter, or at least not things that are very rigid. Uh, but in the case of poets that do, there's all kinds of ways that you look for that perfect rhyme. Uh, what is the, what are some of the tools you use to help with ideation, to help with crafting a poem, to filling in the blanks of your own personal experience and knowledge? Yeah. Um, first I think, uh, I just do a ton of reading and I think like every poet would agree, right? Like you're not going to write good poems unless you're just constantly reading. Um, so I just want to be immersed in language. That doesn't necessarily mean that I have to be immersed in reading a bunch of different poetry collections at the time. Uh, oftentimes it's, it's not. Um, I think there were a lot of years where it was strictly, I'm just reading poetry collections, but now I feel like um, I'm much more interested in, I don't know if I would call it, I would necessarily call it research when it comes to my, my composition process, but it's at least diving into subjects and um, like categories of, of reading that I maybe wouldn't have, right? It's something that I, I wouldn't be used to. Maybe it's science writing, maybe it's nonfiction. And what I want to do there is stumble across the unfamiliar, uh, what mm -hmm. feels really unfamiliar for me. Uh, that way I can, it's, it's a, Maybe it's an image. Maybe it's it's something that that author says in a particular way that unlocks or releases a little gate in my own head um, for language to kind of form into the way that I want it to. Um, so for me, I feel like I'm I'm at least searching for interesting ways that writers are or thinkers are interacting with language. And first and foremost, that's that sort of has to be um, that has to be my way into writing. Um, I also, you know, I think for this book in particular, uh, weirdly, like I was just running and looking at things. Uh, and that was kind of a, a part of the process too, uh, because my mind could never focus on one thing too long. Uh, so it felt like it was just constantly this, you have to shift gears, you have to shift gears again. Uh, here's an image, but you can't hang on to it too long. Here's an idea, but you can't hang on to it too long. And so for me, that that moving through was important and how could I build that moving through through my poems uh, became a part of that. Um, but yeah, I think uh, 
for me, you know, I, I do, I do, I'm, I'm, there was a time when I wasn't a patient writer and at some point I, I became a patient writer and I'm, I'm really grateful for that, that I feel like I don't have to be writing, that I can just be waiting, that I can be waiting to collect things, that I can be thinking about things because that is a part of the, the writing process too. And so I, I was really happy when I realized that I could slow down, take my time, think about things. And, and I would rather take three or four months to write a poem that I feel good about rather than just getting something down on the page. And I feel like when I realized that, that was really beneficial for me as a writer. Well, finally, what are you working on now? Yeah, I'm working on, um, so I finished the follow-up to the air and there behind it. Um, it, it's kind of like a, a book about motion. Um, I feel like it picks up some of the same concerns, but, um, does a lot of different things that I'm, I'm happy about. I, you know, I don't want to, as, as I think like most poets would agree, we don't want to continue to, to write the same book over and over. Um, so I'm, I'm happy with what came together there and I'm hoping to have some good news um, with that manuscript, you know, in, in the, the next couple of years, we'll see. Uh, I've picked up, uh, started working on uh, another poetry book uh, after that too. And uh, I've also been working on some nonfiction and I would, I would like to have a, a book of essays completed probably within the, within the year um, kind of dealing with uh landscape and environment and my time both growing up in Michigan and then spending uh, about a decade in South Carolina in sort of this really what I found was fascinating um, conflict but also overlap between region and the experience of of, of living in, in multiple regions and, and seeing all the connections and, and the disconnections and uh, the richness in, in both so yeah kind of all over the place right now. Cool. Well, Brandon, thank you for sharing your poetry and your voice on the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast today. I appreciate you having me. The Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast is written and produced by James Moorhead. You can follow me on Instagram, threads, and YouTube at Viewless Wings. Hit subscribe to be notified of every episode of the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast and spread the word with your poetry community.